Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit ExcelsiorGP.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a former guest, who's already been on the show, Louis O'Connor. He joined us over 100 episodes ago, which is wild to think about. It's been that long. But you should go check out the original discussion. It's still one of our best performing episodes ever, which is why I'm happy to have him on here for actually a, a, a two-parter. So there'll be three total with Louis. But the original one was number 134. It was about investing strategically into the rare earth market, which we're going to revisit here today. We're going to pick up where we left off and dive back into the world of technology metals and, and what's happening today. So, Louis, maybe as a refresher, could you maybe just give us, I'll encourage people to go back and listen to the original episode, but just high level, what are we talking about here when you reference strategic metals, rare earths, et cetera? Sure thing, Brian. Thanks for having me. So I suppose that the best way to start would be like with the word precious metals. Everybody knows what that means. And, and precious metals is an umbrella term. Most people generally would think of gold and silver. Um, strategic metals, again, is just another umbrella term for the same metals. One of the easiest ways to get people, give people a clear picture of the metals we're talking about is that there are 12 precious metals, also known as strategic metals, also known as technology metals, in any smartphone. And two of them are gold and silver in, in sort of micro doses. It's the other 10 that we'll be talking about. What's interesting about them is the same, like indium, for example, you couldn't swipe your phone without indium. So we, we touch and see and, and feel these raw materials every day. And the same raw material that's in the magnet in a small magnet in the speaker in your smartphone is also in the permanent magnets in electric cars, in wind turbines, 
So the, the best way to define the brine is the, the, they're the, the downstream raw materials that ultimately become trillions of dollars in upstream GDP, and they're relatively new as an asset class. But, I mean, it, it would be easier to say there's not an industry they're not in. I mean, electric cars, solar, wind, aviation, you know, space exploration, military applications, medical devices. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Yeah, and one of the things that we got into on the first episode that you really predicted was that these were going to be substances and metals that we would hear more and more about as electric vehicles became more mainstream, as space technology developed. You and I didn't know about necessarily the military incursion that was going to happen, but that's elevated how we think about the military industrial complex and the technologies that are being used on the battlefield in Europe today. And one of the things we talked about was this unease that you had and that I had with the fact that China has cornered the market or had cornered the market. And you thought of it as a strategic issue, a geopolitical strategic security issue for the rest of the Western hemisphere. And and you nailed it. So could you maybe rehash what the market has been like and then what this means now that China is rolling out these potentially new uh, regulatory issues? Yeah, well, actually, I remember the conversation because you sort of quite rightly, I wouldn't say you you questioned me a bit because your your ears sort of picked up when I said, like, I use, I think we use gallium as an example. 98% of gallium is produced in China. And I think for a few minutes, you couldn't get your head around it. You were sort of, hold on a minute now. If these are sort of critical to, you know, a nation's economic prosperity and, and increasingly military capabilities, how could it be that one one country, you know, controls that one, that, that supply. And it's, it's not just true for gallium. It's true for, for seven of the, the rare earths that we offer. But what's happened since we, we spoke, which is less than a year ago, is something we sort of predicted might happen, which is, you know, we agreed that if that's, you know, the case, China could economically weaponize rare earth metals. And, and that's exactly what they've done. In fact, I was invited on to CNBC a few weeks ago to discuss it because it just sort of came out of the blue. And I mean, I'm talking about North America here, but we're no different here in Europe. It's just your your audience is North American. So there's probably only 200 people in North America really, really know what's going on here. You know, probably the same in Europe. And in the last month, uh, China has economically weaponized two so far. They restricted the export of gallium and germanium, which are known as are considered to be tech technology metals, but they're they have dual use. They're used in the civilian world and also in the in the military world. Now, China said they've restricted the export for national security reasons, but the truth is what it is, it's a retaliatory measure because the US initiated a block on the most advanced computer chip technology getting to China. So we're in this sort of Tit for tat situation at the moment. But the bottom line being that, you know, China pretty much has won the war when it comes to rare earths. And, you know, as I said, the seven of the 10 we offer, China has a 90% or more of the global production. So we in the West now wait in line for what China will release after they satisfy their own domestic quotas. And I can only think that this will worsen 
given what's happening within the microchip sphere and continued degradation of relationships between the US and China. How did we get to this point? How did, did China have, I think, something like 70 or 80% of this market? Because it's not as if they don't exist elsewhere. Correct. But they were really able to get a stranglehold over it. So how, how did we get here? Before we th- talk about what's going to happen next, what's the background? The background is, I think, I don't know if you would agree, but I think the world for the last two or three decades, we were, we were high, if you will, on the globalization drug from the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, often in life, not just in business or supply chain, you know, we can have a good idea or it just seems like a good idea and it can have sort of unintended consequences further down the line. So in the 1980s, uh, the U.S. actually were the global, they dominated the rare earth industry. And I think really the, the, the U.S. government and the Europeans also decided that they would allow China because What's interesting about rare earths as well is they don't occur naturally. They're always a byproduct of another raw material. That's why they're sort of rare and can be limited. So, so the, they have to be extracted. They have to be separated and they have to be refined and processed. So that process is sort of can be complicated and messy. And I think at the time, the US and Europe said, look, let's, you know, China will do it, you know, very, very cheaply. It's messy. We don't want it in our backyard. Why don't we let China do it? And we just buy these raw materials, you know, for our manufacturing on the cheap. I think, though, then what happened was China sort of understood probably before Europe, before the US, that these raw materials would become the backbone of manufacturing in the 21st century. Because in the 1980s, we were really only using them, I suppose, in color TVs. But then once the technology age took off, that's when demand really, really peaked. Right. And, and that makes sense, right? Because I agree with you. I think we all were lulled to sleep with this globalization deal where, you know, we get access to cheap markets for goods and we'd be able to kind of push them through to Southeast Asia and other places. Meanwhile, it had some fairly pernicious knock-on effects that we're just now fully understanding. You referenced a few things that I want to go a little bit deeper on so that people understand the dynamics here. One is messy, was the term you used, because there are some pretty significant environmental concerns when it comes to extraction of what we'll call rare earths, just for a, an umbrella term. Could and, and obviously in the US, that's a very hot button topic that we could maybe get into a policy discussion about, but it is what it is. What is the current regime in terms of from an environmental perspective for Western Europe, North America, US, Canada, in terms of the ability to actually extract these materials from the earth today? Yeah, good question. China has really, really cleaned up the industry since they decided they would become the dominant market leader. And to try and give you some context there, Brian, China has 39 universities graduating degrees in, in critical minerals, in metallurgic engineering. So the estimate is there's about 300,000 metallurgists working in China. There may be 400 in the US. So China's been graduating about 200 metallurgists a week, every week for the last 30 years. So the engineering expertise doesn't exist in Europe or the US. So you know, the technology is there now. It's cleaner now. China cleaned up. There used to be sort of rogue mines operating till, until about 2010. 
So China actually has cleaned it up simply because, you know, they, they have their own plans. I mean, they have huge plans for electric cars. I think that, that Chinese electric car company, BYD, is now the number one seller of electric cars. They're selling them here in Europe, in the US. So their goal was to dominate the industry, which they now do. Now, the next step is to move up the value chain, which is rather than selling the parts, it's to, you know, go further up and, and sell the cars, sell the solar panels and send a wind turbine. So at the moment, even though you may have heard Sweden is thinks to have about a million tons of, of rare earths and, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act that was introduced in the US, there's about $390 billion available. And despite the name, that's all about en- energy transition, which is, you know, so so the incentives are there in the US, but it'll, you know, China didn't, you know, it took, it's not an overnight matter. I mean, it took China a generation to dominate this industry. And even with the best, even with political will and the best intentions and funding, the engineering expertise does not exist at the moment in either Europe or the US. There isn't one processing or refining sit facility in Europe or the US at the moment. So that's why it's such a good window for, you know, for what we, we offer, which is private investors can physically own these raw materials that, that China is now e- economically been weaponizing. So it'll be 10, 15, 20 years before there's alternative supply chains created. There's a lot of alliances going on, the US and Australia and, and different parts of Asia as well. But it's just, you know, it's not an overnight matter. Yeah, I think it's important for people to understand that you might see large deposits being discovered in the headlines, but the actual extraction and processing still takes place for the most part in China or other countries outside of where the the deposits are found, right? Yeah, there's there's only one producing facility in the US, which is Mountain Pass in California. And I believe they're working on, you know, getting to processing. But as far as I know, until very recently, they still have to sell all their rotary raw materials to China for processing because they don't have the facility or the, the engineering expertise. I mean, that will change over the next five, 10 years. But, you know, if you think as well, I mean, labor costs and, you know, Europe, US will do it more sustainably as well. So prices are still going to be going up. And what about from a regulatory environmental standpoint? I mean, what is the current kind of regime, say US, Western Europe, Canada, in terms of the ability to mine for these assets? Yeah, I mean, there's probably, I mean, I'm not so much involved on the mining side and we're, we're, our core business is an industry supplier. So we're buying from producers, suppliers, and we sell to industry suppliers. So we deal more or less with the finished product. But again, I mean, in the last 30 years, you know, with technology and, you know, the, for example, there's the largest producer outside of China is Linus Corp in Australia. And I believe they've they've an agreement with the U.S. Department of Defense to build a facility in either Texas or Florida. So, you know, the the expertise is out there, and and probably you will see a facility in the U.S. in the next five or ten years. You'll see one maybe in 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 Europe and the U.K. But it's it's just you know there's serious investment involved, and it, it takes time. And like also in the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., there's a certain amount of funds there for to promote 
degrees in, in critical, you know, you need metallurgists, you need geologists, you need metallurgic chemical engineers. So that's what will take time. You know, the know-how is already out there. It's just getting the human capital and the engineering expertise up to speed. So in this 10 to 15 year lag period, are there alternatives to, to, you know, the current state of play, or is this just kind of where we are stuck given the dynamics in play? I, I think, for example, we talk about the energy transition. You know, the estimates are it'll be the 2040s by the time the demand, if you will, peaks for electric cars and, you know, wind wind and solar. I don't think, and many experts, I mean, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not a, in the industry as long as, as many people. The people who are around a lot longer than I am would say there will be and not be enough of these raw materials. So we won't... I think achieve this energy transition in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, like we think we can, the infrastructure is not there. The raw materials are not there. So, you know, we'll still use, you know, oil and gas and maybe there'll be alternative sources, but the rare earths themselves, there just wouldn't be enough available. I mean, a gentleman from the U S actually said to me, and he's way more knowledgeable than I, he said, Louis, don't be surprised if, one of the big car manufacturers in Europe and one in the US is not in business in 2035 because they all want to go electric, but there's not enough raw materials for that to happen. Wow, that's significant. And what about, so we kind of touched on this, the fact that things need to go back to China, even if they're not found there. Are there other supply chain issues that we should be aware of just in terms of choke points or how this actually works? today in terms of getting rare earths from point A to point B. Exceptional family offices, family enterprises, wealth management, and financial services organizations require superior leadership to successfully thrive in today's competitive environment. Building a team of talented leaders is a complex challenge that is best accomplished in partnership with a firm that offers a proven track record of success, which is why I'd like to introduce you to our new sponsor, Mac International. Mac International is recognized as the premier boutique firm that specializes in providing retained executive search and strategic human capital consulting solutions to single and multi-client family offices, family enterprises, and the full spectrum of wealth management advisory, investment management, and financial services firms that serve ultra-high net private investors and family offices on a national and international basis. If you're interested in learning more about Mac International, visit their website at www.macinternational.com. Well, it, you know, it's it's not, I suppose you could say the industry is not transparent because as we just discussed, the political landscape is coming more into play. Um, you know, this is, you know, it's a geopolitical strategy, you know, and, and, and China just has their own plans for, you know, my understanding is, you know, this, you know, half of China is probably not on the grid. They've still a long way to go with their own infrastructure with, you know, with electric cars, with solar, wind panel. So they just, you know, they're just in that position and the rest of the world, I mean, particularly the West now, we just have to wait in line for what China will sell or, or export once they satisfy their own domestic quotas. So it's, it's sort of a done deal. China, I think, has sort of has won this one, you know. 
what is it done to pricing? Are are people stockpiling these assets? Are manufacturers becoming more guarded with like their ability to distribute them within industries or outside of them? What's happened so far? The you know China hasn't weaponized rare earths in over a decade. The last time this happened was 2011. Um, if people Google, they'll see that the Chinese detained, or sorry, the Japanese detained a, a, a captain of a trawler who was fishing in disputed waters. In retaliation, uh, China restricted the export of rare earths to Japan, and we saw prices, the space of about five months, you know, 5x. So it hasn't been weaponized in over a decade. What happened in the last 60 days is China announced in early July that they would restrict the export of gallium and germanium, which are technology metals where they, they, you know, they produce 98% of, of the world's gallium. And gallium has dual applications, civilian use and military use. China's position is, you know, it's a retaliatory measure. So we're just in that sort of the political landscape is now involved. What we understand as a supplier, and we've known this for a while, is that China has plans to restrict more rare earths before the end of this year. I believe the premier of, of China and, and President Biden are, are scheduled to meet in November. And if things haven't sort of cooled down or if they haven't, you know, I mean, this summer alone, there was three high level sort of U.S. diplomats visited, visited China, you know, specifically for this. So, so tensions are, are manifest and sort of escalating at the moment. And yeah, the prices are rising, obviously, as a result of, of these restrictions. And I think it would be fair to say that nations as well as corporations have are either stockpiling or have plans to stockpile. Because like we talked about the smartphone there, there's, there's very small doses, but Apple could in no way, you know, allow the production of iPhones to stop just because they don't have gallium. So, you know, regardless of the amount needed, it just couldn't, you know, they just cannot afford to for production to stop. So that's the key thing. I mean, nations and particularly technology companies are always stockpiling. But, you know, right now it's tensions are as high up there as they have been in, in over a decade. And, and actually, I mean, China has, has physically restricted. There was no gallium or germanium exported from China in the month of August. Really? Mm-hmm. And do you anticipate more restrictions coming? We understand that the plans are already in place. And really what this is, Brian, is it's a warning shot from China. It's a shot across the bow to say we are willing to go all this way. Because what it is, is the the, the technology is in the West. China is about 10 years behind the rest of the world for these advanced computer chips. and But China has the raw materials. So the U.S. has been, along with Holland and Japan and Korea, have been blocking that technology together from getting to China and in retaliation, China said, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll restrict the, the raw materials. I mean, this whole Taiwan thing, the reason the US and China are willing to go to war in, in Taiwan, it's, it's because of the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing company. They produce 92% of the most advanced computer chips in the world. China imports all their computer chips at the moment and they're at least 10 years, maybe 15 years behind Taiwan and the rest of the world. So, you know, as somebody recently said, which sort of sums it up quite well, they said the, the, we're, we're at the beginning of, of Cold War 2.0, except it's not an arms race. It's, it's a semiconductor race. Right, which is 
it seems like China and the U.S. are both in another race, which is to reshore and nearshore manufacturing of those microchips, right? I mean, that was the big piece of Biden legislation that also was passed, was to try to bring that in-house domestically. China obviously is putting a lot of capital out the door to do the same. Taiwan's kind of stuck in the middle. For now, no one can afford to not have them around, but big big picture, it's not great for them probably long-term in terms of where people are allocating capital strategically. And this is just part of that whole story in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, every, I mean, what device nowadays doesn't have a small computer in it? I mean, you know, everything has a computer chip, literally microwaves, cars, tractors, phones, you know, I mean, literally everything. So, so yeah, they're, they're literally the, the key to, to manufacturing in the, in the, in this century now that we're in. And, and China just, you know, is, is just way ahead in terms of the, they the, they planned well ahead and, and they're, they're now in that dominant position. There's about, 10 of these, what we call strategic metals, Brian, and seven of them, China produces 90% or more. I can name the seven if you want, but some of the other ones like Hafnium, for example, is also produced in France and Germany. So not all 10, but, you know, seven out of 10 is a big number. 70%, you know, of these critical raw materials, we completely rely on, on China for the supply at the moment. Europe and the U.S. now really finally has woken up and said, okay, we have to wean our dependence off China, hence the Inflation Reduction Act, the Critical Minerals Act in Europe. But it's going to take some time. And, and you know, that's why, you know, investors obviously can profit at the moment from owning them. What is the Critical Minerals Act? It's the equivalent, it's or the European version of the U.S. In Inflation Reduction Act. So that was introduced after sort of Russia's aggression in Ukraine, Europe realized we're completely dependent on Russia for oil and gas. So Europe has accelerated its transition to cleaner, you know, to low, low carbon economies. And they introduced the Critical Minerals Act. Just it's, it's almost exactly a mirror of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Are other countries doing anything different that U.S. listeners should be aware of in terms of how they're responding to China's tactics? Good question. Good question. You know, I mean, we're, I mean, we're a German, I'm in Ireland, but we, we're smack bang in the middle of Europe. We're a German company. We're, you know, one of the most industrialized nations in the world. And what's interesting to me is when Angela Merkel left, the first visit from the new German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, was to China. And Germany and, and China have very, very good relations, which really means, you know, China and the EU has has pretty good relations. So so I don't see as much tension there. And we've no problem, I mean, with our suppliers and, and getting the raw materials. I mean, it is it is a billion dollar industry at the end of the day and business is being conducted as usual. But Europe's being caught, you know, it's it's very much like that saying, you know, it's only when the tide goes out we'll see who's swimming naked, right? Europe, you know, as we say here, the Europeans they want to drive their Teslas, but they don't want the mining in the backyard. We've been happy to have all the raw materials supplied from China. But I think that will change. But, you know, even this Swedish thing, I mean, if they ever even get it approved, you know, because the greens are pretty big over here, um, you're looking at 15 years before, you know, these raw materials are available to go to market. So so that's the window that I, you know, for me, all I know is the next five or 10 years for sure, 
this it'll take that long to come up with some sort of a solution and in the meantime you know investors can obviously profit yeah so can you expand on that a little bit in terms of i know we covered at the initial episode but what is the play for you from an investment thesis perspective okay so it's exactly the same paradigm as at buying gold or silver there are our, our investors physically own the assets gallium germanium indium but the most important thing to know about us brian is is not really the investment play although that, that might sound a little bit of a contradiction but it's the most important thing about us is that we are an industry supplier our core business is you know 80 percent of our business activities is we're buying and selling these raw materials from producers. We resell to industry buyers. We've over 2,000 clients in 70 different countries. If that wasn't our core business, we couldn't have this offer, what you guys might call our side hustle, a side business, which is we have our own vault. We store raw materials there. We have over 200 metric tons of rare earths in a, in a vault in Frankfurt. And we've invited private investors to participate in the industry. Now, it, it, it's only because of our core business we can do that because, one, we know what the industry buys. We know what Boeing buy or Airbus or Apple or Siemens or, you know, or we know what our clients are buying. So we, we're buying industrial grade gallium 99.99%. So we guarantee our, the investor is buying exactly the same as what the industry needs. And then, of course, we can provide the exit because we've over 2,000 industry buyers on a daily basis we're buying and selling. So, so that's really what it is. We invite investors to participate in the industry with us. And of course, there's a, you know, there's a bid ask spread like there is in gold or silver. But, you know, I won't go into any numbers now, but, you know, the last five years, I mean, you know, they have been, you know, an excellent, you know, excellent gains and excellent returns. And, you know, I don't think anybody would argue that demand for technology metals, aviation, space industry are going to decrease. I mean, if anything, when they are increasing. So, you know, so it's a very interesting play. Well, and that's where I was going to go next in terms of, I know China's got a quota system. They've been upping that quota system in terms of the amount of rare earths that they're able to produce annually. I'm not exactly sure how that works over there, but it sounds very bureaucratic, but yeah, I mean, if people are interested in this space from an investing perspective and considering allocate capital to it, what are some things that they should keep an eye out for in terms of signposts or, you know, markers that this is starting to get pretty exciting? Yeah. You know, either in the news or the financial papers, et cetera. Yeah. You know, I think like, as I said, when, when, when we were chatting on the CNBC, like the, 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 the journalists there were saying gallium, you know, and germanium, they're not words you'll hear every day, but they are coming more into the mainstream specifically, you know, because of this. I mean, we're, we're sort of looking at a sort of a Cold War 2.0. What people wouldn't know as well is in the last five years, China's importing 40% of the raw material. So there's talk out there that China could be running out of high grade, you know, rare earths themselves because because they don't occur naturally, you know, they have to be, they're not always high grade, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of chemically very similar. So they have to be extracted and then separated and, and then refined. So, you know, it's just because there might be traces of rare earths doesn't mean you're going to get them to purity levels that are, that are needed in a jet engine or a rocket engine for that matter. 
the truth of it is that we're right now in in the vortex. I think of of we've we've one country that controls the supply of critical raw materials that are you know hugely in demand, critical to a nation's economic prosperity, military capabilities. So we're right in it. Does it doesn't get any hotter than it does at the moment? And then you know, would there be any any potential issues that would deflate the market? I mean. Would there be a discovery of a huge, I mean, obviously there's, we talked about this lag between discovery and processing and the ability of these countries to actually extract and manufacture themselves, but what would some down case scenarios look like? Yeah, well, you probably just saw on the news yesterday and today that, that I think NASA for the first time extracted a part of an asteroid and, and that's what that's all about is, is the raw materials that can be. So, you know, um, the the world needs them and is doing everything they can to get them. For example, Japan is beginning to to, to look at mining the seabed as well. So, like any supply and demand scenario, I mean, you could have uh, a case where you know there could be a lot of of production. But as I said, like it just doesn't happen overnight because they're you know like to give you an idea, like hafnium is a byproduct of zirconium mining at a ratio of 50 to 1. So for every 50 tons of zirconium, you'd only get one ton of hafnium. Gallium is a byproduct of aluminum mining. So you just can't ramp up production. And then the other side of that is the technology and the human expertise to do the separation only right now exists in China. 90% is being done in China. So I think in 20 years from now, that will look completely different, but it won't be look different in two years or three years or five years from now. It'll take 10 to 15 to at least sort of change this course, you know. But yeah, I mean, probably in 50 years, we might be, you know, bringing them from asteroids. But right at this moment in time, China dominates the market and, and the world is, is sort of, you know, waiting. Yeah, we're beholden to them. Correct. Well, Louis, I want to thank you so much for coming on to giving us an update in this world is fascinating and it's always fun to have the headlines correspond with somebody in my world that can actually untangle some of the things that you read and give you some more insight and more in-depth analysis if people are interested in connecting with you about you put out really good content in this world on the content side or on the investing side if they're curious to learn more where should they go well, they could email me, and, and if they mention your podcast, Brian, it's Louis, L-O-U-I-S, at strategicmetalsinvest.com, or they could just go to the website. I just want to download a brochure and, and learn more. Uh, just go to www.strategicmetalsinvest.com. Wonderful. Louis, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck moving forward, and I would encourage people to connect because you do put out great content, and this is an area that we all need to get smarter on, so thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.